ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Monday the 29th of January. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, the deadliest six months on Australian roads since 2010. Why is the death toll on the rise? And the Windies win. Families and friends celebrate back home in Guyana as young bowler Shamar Joseph rips through the Australian batting lineup. This morning, about five o'clock, through the village, we heard screaming. So we wanted to know what was wrong, and that was screaming from residents saying, Shamar, bring West Indies to victory. An inquiry by the consumer watchdog into childcare has found that market forces are failing lower income, First Nations and remote families. There's also a shortage of childcare workers nationwide. The report recommends the federal government take stewardship of the market to identify underserved communities and make regulatory changes when needed. Rachel Hayter reports. After a year investigating the country's childcare market, the consumer regulator has found it's failing some of the most vulnerable and disadvantaged families. We have underserved parts of our community and the one-size-fits-all policy approach is not meeting all needs and particularly that for lower-income families, for First Nations families, for families in remote areas. Chair of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, Gina Cascott-Lee, warns these groups do not have accessible or affordable childcare. There is a much higher proportion of disposable income being spent on childcare. So we're not delivering. As a result, enrolment in those communities is much lower, which can have lifelong consequences for the children missing out. CEO of the Parenthood, a not-for-profit advocacy organisation representing parents and carers, Georgie Dent, explains why. What happens between zero and five is the most richly formative time in a child's brain development. So 90% of the brain is developed by the age of five we have to start looking at the early years as a fundamental component of our education system. She's welcoming what she's described as a paradigm shift in this report, a recommendation that the federal government take on a more hands-on role in the childcare market. When it talks about stewardship, it talks about taking a more holistic approach and it does also note that there are going to have to be a variety of different ways that we do fund early education depending on the location and the needs of of different communities. The report suggests subsidies for parents are not working everywhere and grants for providers are needed in some regions. Gina Cascott leave again. The parents and the families just don't have that capacity to bring that attraction to bear to the suppliers. So to look at supply side funding, you know, such as grants or specific funding to particular providers, they may be not for profit providers who are focusing more in these areas, so that the government is actually encouraging them to participate more in areas that are less profitable to serve. The report also recommends removing, relaxing or substantial 
substantially changing eligibility requirements, acting as a barrier to accessing care. Because the families don't meet the requirements of being either in employment or for sufficient number of hours or looking for work, that uh, they don't meet that activity test requirement. And so an alternative would be to consider a specific entitlement such that they get a guaranteed number of days of care or support. The report also found that worker shortages are affecting all childcare markets and labour is the main driver of cost for supplying childcare. Helen Gibbons is the Executive Director of Early Education at the United Workers' Union. The ACCC clearly identified that the key determinant of quality and viability of services is stability of staff. There is no solution to the workforce crisis without starting to pay educators properly. The ACCC has acknowledged the affordability of childcare improved immediately after the federal government's cheaper childcare reforms that took effect in July last year, boosting subsidies for many families. Minister for Early Childhood Education Anne Ali has indicated the government is open to further action. I think the report makes it very clear that some form of regulation or intervention is going to need uh, is is needed in areas where the market is failing or where the market just isn't delivering. She says every Australian child should have access to quality early education and care. That's a Rachel Hayter reporting there. The United Nations is calling on countries to resume funding its main aid agency in Gaza after several nations, including Australia, paused their contributions. The funding was stopped after Israel claimed that 12 of the agency's employees had taken part in the October 7th attacks. It came shortly after an interim ruling from the International Court of Justice in the genocide case brought by South Africa over Israel's military action in Gaza. Alexandra Humphreys filed this report. In Gaza City, flour is precious. Palestinians scramble to get hold of enough to feed their families. The sacks are too heavy for many to carry. We went to the Kuwaiti roundabout to get flour and thank God we managed to get one bag. But we struggled in heavy rain. Some people were killed. May God have mercy on them. We struggled a lot but thank God we managed to get one bag of flour and we're leaving. There's not enough for everyone. A quarter of Gaza's population is starving, according to the United Nations. For God's sake, we need to eat. Our children are dying of hunger. What's happening to us? God will take his vengeance. Outside of Gaza, debate rages over the future of funding for the main humanitarian agency there, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Nine countries have paused funding for the agency, including the United States and Australia, after Israel claimed a dozen of UNRWA's employees participated in the October 7 attacks. UNRWA employs about 13,000 people in Gaza to provide food, housing and other essential services to residents. It also supports Palestinian refugee populations in Lebanon, Jordan, Syria and the West Bank. So this has major implications for about 5.6 million Palestinians who are deemed to be refugees. Helen Clark is the former Prime Minister of New Zealand and previously served as head of the United Nations Development Program. She argues the response is, quote, 
completely disproportionate. Oh, I, I think it, it, it really collectively punishes uh, Palestinians. You know, they're desperate for relief. The International Court of Justice at The Hague was clear that that, that uh, relief needed to get through. And then suddenly you have a range of Western countries suspending funding for the main organisation that distributes the aid. Mark Regev is a senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. This is an organisation that works hand in glove with Hamas. Maybe they don't have a choice because Hamas is controlling a very autocratic regime and if you want to work in Gaza, maybe you have to. The aid continues to go into Gaza, but maybe the people delivering the aid should be humanitarian organisations not tainted by terrorism. UNRWA says it's taken immediate action, terminating the contracts of nine staff and pledging an investigation. Chris Gunness is the organisation's former chief spokesperson. Make no mistake, this suspension of Australian aid is punish, punishing some of the most vulnerable and fragile human beings on this planet today. Just days ago, the International Court of Justice issued an interim ruling on the genocide case brought by South Africa, finding that some of South Africa's assertions were plausible. It's also imposed several conditions, that Israel take all measures to prevent genocide in Gaza and avoid killing or causing physical or psychological harm to Palestinians. It stopped short of ordering a ceasefire. UNRWA says its aid delivery will end next month if funding isn't restored. That's Alexandra Humphreys reporting there. A drone attack on a US military base near the Syrian border in Jordan has killed three US troops and wounded more than 30 others. The White House has blamed Iran-backed forces and has promised to respond. Jordan says the attack was on Syrian soil. So what does the latest strike mean for the region as tension escalates? Grant Rumley is Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Yeah, I mean, I think today's tragic attack uh, is a reflection of, uh, you know, what we've seen from Iran for several years now, uh, where Iran conducts attacks on the U.S. via its network of proxy groups throughout the region in Iraq and Syria and, and Yemen. And uh, and so I think, you know, we have seen this play out. And oftentimes the U.S. response has been either to absorb these attacks um, or sort of wait and respond in kind, um, targeting the proxy Proxies themselves. What we haven't done is is target Iran or, or Iran directly, um, and so I think. You know, you'll see more of a debate in Washington about whether or not it's time for the U.S. to escalate. Is it time? Well, I think I think Iran is operating under this playbook that they can that they can fight the Americans to the very last proxy group, and until they pay some type of cost, I think you'll see more and more people make the argument that once you change that calculation, perhaps you change the Iranian playbook. Um, the problem with that argument, of course, is that it's largely untested, and if you do escalate against Iran or inside Iran directly, you, you risk escalating an already inflamed situation. Which way do you think Joe Biden and his administration would be likely to go? He's warned of that there will be action, but as you're saying, the type of action is really the question, isn't it? Sure. Well, I don't think he'll do. Any, uh, I don't think he'll do nothing. Uh, he certainly has to respond. And bear in mind that this is also going to become a political issue in an election year. Uh, the presumptive Republican nominee, Donald Trump, will will be able to say that, you know, when he was president, he took action. He uh, ordered the, uh, the the killing of Qasem Soleimani. He took action against the, the Iranian-aligned networks. And so uh, I think Biden will feel pressure to respond. His, his options are, are pretty 
pretty open. He can respond against the Iranian-aligned groups in Iraq and Syria, uh, the groups that carried out this attack, um, as we have done in the past. He can respond against more directly Iranian assets in the region, so some of Iran's IRGC forces elsewhere in the region. And then he could dramatically respond by uh, by attacking Iran inside Iran, um, which I think would be a rather unprecedented move. Uh, and I'm not entirely certain it's where he'll lean, but of course, all options are, are on the table. What's Joe Biden's standing in the Middle East at the moment, given that the Netanyahu government has largely ignored many of his requests and pleas for some restraint in Gaza? Well, I think Joe Biden has a, has a long history of affection for the state of Israel. Uh, he's visited often as a senator. Uh, he's understood the importance of the U.S.-Israel relationship uh, from when he was new to Washington. And so I think his commitment to Israel goes beyond the current Israeli government, uh, if that makes sense. I think there's obviously some tension in the relationship, but I think Biden understands that you know, what happened on October 7th was an unprecedented level uh, attack against Israel. And a lot of Americans died uh, on that day as well. Um, and that, you know, his commitment to providing security assistance, to providing support to Israel, extends sort of beyond uh, the current Israeli administration. That's Grant Rumley there, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Right around Australia, you're tuned in to The World Today. Well, there's alarm at new figures showing that Australia has recorded its deadliest six-month road toll in more than 13 years. The report by the nation's peak motoring group has found that South Australia, New South Wales and Victoria are continuing to record significant increases in road deaths. Advocates and experts say while driver behaviour is a major factor... A lack of timely data on road accidents is making it very difficult to get a clear picture of the problem. Gavin Coote reports. Jack Anir has no memory of the car crash he was in at just 18, which killed three of his close friends. The first thing that I knew is I woke up being blinded by a fluoro light in the intensive care unit at the old Royal Adelaide Hospital. In the days that were to follow, I was to discover that I'd been in a three-week coma. Now in his 30s, he shares his story with schools and organisations across South Australia in the hope it'll improve driver behaviour. But the latest figures show the state's road toll has jumped dramatically, a sign there's still a long way to go. My heart goes out to the families who are, who are involved in these today and it does, it does make me sad. You know, I get angry at the system and the fact that the, the driver education system is such that we're not giving people the tools to manage to get home safely. Data from the Australian Automobile Association shows 677 people died in the second half of last year. It's the highest six-month total since 2010. This is a report and a set of numbers that show us that the government's hands-off approach to road trauma reduction is really not working and it's really not sustainable. The association's managing director, Michael Bradley, argues a lack of quality data from across all states and territories is making it difficult to understand what's causing the high road toll and how to tackle the problem. The numbers we need to understand this are collected by state and territory governments. They are not reported, they are not comparable, they are not collated. We do not have a national data set which explains things like the quality of our road network, the causes of the crashes, the fatality crashes that are happening every day, the effectiveness of the very different approaches to road trauma management that are in place in every jurisdiction and the enforcement of them. 
While some jurisdictions, like the Australian Capital Territory, Tasmania and the Northern Territory recorded significant declines, others spiked. In South Australia, road fatalities surged by nearly 65% on the previous year. The fact that South Australia is so much ahead of the average for Australia and other states is a surprise. John Glover heads up Torrens University's Public Health Information Development Unit in Adelaide. He agrees a lack of up-to-date, detailed information about road crashes makes it very difficult to get a handle of the problem, but points out socioeconomic status is a major factor. And again, the remoteness gap too is very large, and particularly in the states like you know South Australia, Queensland, WANT, with, with longer distances and, and so on driven, um, deaths of people from those areas are much higher. Among the 117 people who died on South Australian roads last year was Charlie Stevens, the son of the state's police commissioner, Grant Stevens. The 18-year-old was the alleged victim of a hit-and-run crash in November. In the case of the commissioner's son, it was a weekend of celebration in a coastal area and people are out at hours they might normally be and perhaps roads aren't as well lit. I mean, one of the things that comes home to me is that we look at data for particularly premature deaths before age 75 and, and the data we're going to get in May and then we have to process them will be for, for 2022. So we won't know the 2023 figures for any age group until May and after May 2025. So this is a real problem in understanding what's going on and, and delving into the data more deeply and, and perhaps getting a better handle on what's going on so we can address it. That's John Glover there from Torrens University in Adelaide ending that report from Gavin Coote. Well, for the first time in 15 years, the South Australian economy has been judged the best in the country. A quarterly review has found that population growth and affordable housing are pushing the festival state ahead of its eastern rivals. And that's before the state becomes the construction hub for the AUKUS nuclear submarines. Angus Randall reports. Great wine, dramatic scenery and now a thriving economy. South Australian Premier Peter Malinowskis is crowing about his state being named the best economy in the country. I mean, if you think, you know, going back 15 years ago when we faced the prospect of losing Holdens, people were forecasting that the state would be in a lot of trouble. Well, here we are today, number one in the country. Comsec, which is owned by the Commonwealth Bank, has released its quarterly State of the States report, which considers eight economic indicators, including unemployment, population growth and construction. And South Australia was the clear winner. Comsec's chief economist is Craig James. A tripling in terms of population growth over the last two years. Uh, more people you know, sort of finding jobs and that's producing yes overall strength in terms of the economic growth in the economy, uh, particularly in terms of the housing market, uh, very, very strong. Housing affordability is better than, yes, a lot of the other states of the nation, and that's attracting more people in, more homes are being bought and more homes are being built. Victoria and New South Wales are in equal second, followed by Western Australia, Tasmania, the ACT, Queensland and in last place, the Northern Territory. Economic growth has slowed in all states and territories. Craig James says that's a direct result of the Reserve Bank's plan to increase interest rates and bring inflation under control. We are seeing the, the job market still remaining fairly resilient you know, across, the, across the nation. Unemployment you know, historically still very, very low. So you'd say it's pretty much a Goldilocks situation at the moment across Australia. Not too hot, not too cold, just about right. 
Back in South Australia, preliminary work has already begun on the shipyards that will build Australia's first nuclear-powered submarines. The federal government says up to 4,000 jobs will be created during the upgrading of current shipyards in Adelaide's northwest, and a further 5,500 could be needed to actually build the subs. Andrew Kay is the CEO of Business SA. We're going to have a bit of a perfect storm of demand for, for workers, particularly skilled trades, with not only the submarine project, but you have the hydrogen project out north and you also have the infrastructure project going as well. So we're going to see demand for similar roles and it's going to put more, more pressure on, uh, on skills and jobs in South Australia in the next decade. All those workers will need somewhere to live. South Australia ranked highest for construction work, both completed and commenced. Andrew Kay says more can be done. We know there's a number of projects and land projects that have been announced by the government over the last few months to try and meet some of that demand, but there's certainly going to be healthy demand over the next decade and beyond for housing in South Australia. We just need to come up with a plan that brings those houses to the market uh, with haste and uh, has the supporting infrastructure around them to ensure that it works for the, not just for the people living there, but the surrounding environment as well. The next State of the States report will be released in May. That's Angus Randall. Finally today, West Indian cricket fans are in a state of ecstasy after their team scored one of its greatest test upsets at the Gabba yesterday. Despite fielding a team loaded with new players and taking on the world champions on Australian soil, the men from the Caribbean won a thrilling contest by just eight runs. One player, Shamar Joseph, took an extraordinary seven wickets. Back in his hometown, the locals are still celebrating. David Sparks has more. Shamar Joseph around the wicket trying to get this last wicket. He bowls now and he... Bowls! He's won! They've won! Shamar Joseph has knocked the stump out of the ground. It was a win for the ages and one young champion stood out. Shamar Joseph in his second test, tearing through the Australian batting lineup to take seven wickets. Joseph in outside edge, taking a second slip and Shamar Joseph's got three. Shamar Joseph around the wicket, bowls Alex Carey. Here comes Shamar, bowls short and he's hit this in the air, he should be caught on the offside, he's out. What a performance. And in Shamar Joseph's hometown, the small community of Barakara in Guyana, the wind sparked early morning celebrations. This morning, about five o'clock, through the village, we heard screaming. <laughs> so we wanted to know what was wrong, and that was screaming from residents saying, Shamar, bring West Indies to victory. Aisha Amsterdam was Joseph's primary school teacher in Barakara. She says they've all been staying up late to watch him on the television, but because they thought he'd be off the field with a toe injury, they decided to go to bed, only to wake up to the extraordinary news. We had a big celebration at the church, a very big celebration at the church. <laughs> what time of morning did you have the celebration? That was 5.38. All community members came out of the church and we celebrate 5.38 this morning. I can hear some cool music in the background. What's going on there? We're having a little celebration, a little cookout and so on for Shamar. So oh, you're still celebrating now? Yes. Not only were the Windies up against the current world champions, they hadn't won a test in Australia in 27 years. I am going to stick my neck out and say it was uh, the greatest 
upset in Test cricket history, at least in the last hundred or so years. Cricket commentator and writer Bharat Sundaresan. <laughs> Look, you're talking about a team which had seven uncapped players, a West Indies team as well, uh, and everyone in Australia. Uh, pretty much when they found out that West Indies are coming for a second consecutive year, went, oh dear, not again. Um, and nobody wanted to host them either. Uh, and then finally we landed with Adelaide and Brisbane. Uh, and then look what they did. And, and they did it pretty coolly <laughs> as well. It, it As much as there was a tinge of it being a miracle win, uh, it wasn't. They dominated this test and eventually it took something absolutely uh, extraordinary from this young guy playing a second test to get them over the line. This victory has reminded the cricket world of how much better test cricket is when countries outside the big three of Australia, India and England are able to perform. It's getting harder for some nations to compete. Cricket West Indies CEO Johnny Grave says the board has spent more than $2 million US dollars on the tour of Australia with little reward. And he's backing calls for a new revenue sharing model. Bharat Sundaresan says something needs to change. I mean, there was stock of a test match fund not now many years ago. Uh, it never came to fruition. But if, say, rather than the West Indies having to lose $2 million US dollars for spend, for sending their teams all the way and creating uh, this spectacle that they did at the GABA, uh, maybe if uh, that pressure is taken away from them, that money can um, uh, be spent elsewhere in the grassroots in finding other superstars like a Shamar Joseph or a Kevin Sinclair. He says the powerful nations aren't rushing to make that happen. But for now, it's worth just taking this opportunity to savour an unlikely victory. Oh, one of the great moments in the history of West Indies cricket here at the Gabba. A huge performance by the West Indies. That's ABC cricket commentator Jim Maxwell ending that report from David Sparks. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Take care.